Psalm 61. All right. We'll see that the Holy Spirit will speak to us. Lead me to the rock. Now I have, you know, the Latin, uh, you know, note to bene, note well. I always put down NB and I have it written next to Psalm 61. I don't know what that means, but it must be a good one. Uh, it is short, which is one reason we love it. Okay. If you can't say it in five words or less, don't say it. Okay? All right, Psalm 61. What does yours say there as the title? Yeah, to the choir master with strings instruments of Psalm of David. But is there a title in your Bible for that psalm? What's that? Have you ever sung Jesus is the rock and he rolls my blues away? Bob Chubop, Chubop, wow. That's, that's my second favorite to you take a stick of bamboo, you take a stick of bamboo, you take a stick of bamboo and throw it in the river. Water, yeah, right. <laughs> All right. Killing time now. We've wasted four minutes. Uh, what's that? This is being recorded. All of this is being recorded for all the fans listening at home. Okay, Psalm 61. Yeah, mine says, lead me to the rock. I know we shouldn't have, we, we shouldn't have had class today. Uh, okay, verse 1. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. All right. What did you hear? Donna? Your suggestion? You can lead the discussion. <laughs> what did you hear? Well, tell me this. Why did you want to do Psalm 61? That might help us out. Oh, I see. Yes, the Holy Spirit spoke to you. Yes, right. You opened the Bible, and there it was. That's like, uh, you know... Yeah. Yes, right. He, yeah, he's praying for the king. Now, in the, in the ancient world, so in biblical times, uh, what was sort of the status of a king? How did that compare to a priest or a prophet? Yeah, but very, there's only one person. Well, there are two people who hold the title prophet and, or king and priest at the same time, and that's Jesus and Melchizedek, right? Yeah, Melchizedek is the only other one who's a priest and a king. Yeah, so priests, priests would offer sacrifices, prophets would tell you what was coming, and kings would rule the daily affairs of the nations. Are kings appointed by God or by man in the scriptures? Appointed by God, right? They're appointed by God. Um, they're appointed by, it almost, yeah. 
And they're a figurehead in some sense spiritually and in the secular world. It's like if you go to, if you're ever at Cambridge or if you're in Europe or you use the Book of Common Prayer, uh, the prayers end at evening prayer, God save the queen, right? Okay, that, that's essentially what David is saying here, God save the king. Okay? Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock. Now, what do you know about rocks in Scripture? Tell me some famous rocks in Scripture. Yes. So the rock in the wilderness. This is good. Yes, that Moses struck. Uh, rocks, you mean? Yes, they may be. What Are there other rocks? What are you thinking of? Yes. Yeah, rocks rocks are become sacred space. Yeah, they build an altar of rock, right? So uh, one of the earliest incidences of that is Abraham and Isaac. Remember, they're about to slaughter Isaac. Abraham doesn't do it. They build an altar, and it says, on this place, the Lord will be seen. Right? That's what the Hebrew says. In this place, the Lord will be seen. Okay, so good. But there's, uh, there is the, probably the most famous rock story is the story of the Old Testament where Moses taps the rock and what comes out? Water. Now, do you remember what St. Paul says in the epistles about that rock? Yes. Now, that's fascinating. The rock was Christ. Okay, the rock was Christ. Christ. He doesn't say... The rock resembled Christ, or the rock looked like Christ, or the rock reminded us of Christ. He says the rock was Christ. So when Moses taps the rock, who was he tapping? Who is he hitting? Who is he striking? Jesus. And from Jesus comes water. Now, where do you remember a time? There, what are, tell me some water stories where Jesus and water are connected. Woman at the well. Yes, right. Woman at the well. Okay. The baptism, uh, yes, good, the baptism. Where's the woman at the well? John chapter, John 4. Uh, yes, okay, now let's go slowly, okay? Jeez, we open it up to you guys and we just all over the place. Say that again? Yeah, I know, well now you're going way, now you're going too quickly, okay? Now you're going too quickly, I can't think that fast. Go to John chapter 4. Ah, yes, this is good. This is very good. The Holy Spirit is speaking to me as we speak. Here we go. What's so funny about that? All right, John chapter 4. You know, there's a great, I had a professor in college, you know, some pastors go to the, go to the pulpit, and what's their prayer before they get in the pulpit? Holy Spirit, give me the words to speak. And this professor used to say, if that's your prayer, you know what the Holy Spirit says? get out of the pulpit. <laughs> if you haven't prepared and you walk in the pulpit and say, give me the words to speak, the Holy Spirit says, skip the sermon this Sunday. Okay? All right, John chapter 4. Would somebody like to read, starting at verse 7? No, oh, stop right there. What do you know about Samaritans? Dirty, yeah, dirty. So that's why the, the story of the Good Samaritan is so striking. The priest walks by, the nobleman walks by. Who stops? 
the one who's rejected. So the Good Samaritan, of course, is Sunday school answer. Jesus, right? Yes. All right, keep going. Keep reading, Betty. All right, perfect. Uh, so the water, tell me about the water in John 4. Where does it come from? It comes from the well, and it comes from Jesus, right? Now there's actually, and this is something, this is something you don't pick up in your English translation. Uh, if you look at verse 14, there's actually a variant reading. You know, in the scriptures, if you have a Greek New Testament, if you ever look at one, in the bottom or on the bottom, there will be a, a multitude of variant readings. So all throughout history, people have translated this, and sometimes they translate it a bit differently for whatever reason. They've talked to people. They've met people. They've read a church father. They were there to see it and saw it. There are variant readings. Now, one of the variant readings for this text says this, verse 14, uh, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will, uh, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The variant reading says, this is Jesus now speaking, from me will flow streams of living water. In this text, the living water comes from whom? The woman, right? I will make living water flow out of you. But the variant reading says, from me will flow streams of living water. So the living water comes out of Jesus, okay? Which should lead you to the next rock story. The rock in the wilderness is tapped by Moses and water comes out. St. Paul says the rock is Christ. Where do you see living water gushing forth from Christ? The crucifixion, right? John chapter 20. You can flip there. John chapter 20. You know, John's gospel, uh, is there any instance in John's gospel where the sacraments are given by Jesus to the church? You know, in Matthew, the sacraments are given. They he says, go and baptize. Uh, there's the account of the Last Supper. In Luke's gospel, same thing. In Mark's gospel, same thing. Is there any account in John's gospel where Jesus says, go and baptize all nations? Or, conversely, where he says, uh, let's go have a Last Supper, and by the way, this is my body and this is my blood. Is there any instance of that in John's Gospel? No. John's Gospel never has the institution of baptism or the institution of Holy Communion. So some people will say John's Gospel is not sacramental. This is very important. John's Gospel is not sacramental. Now you know John's Gospel is sacramental because at the very beginning he says it's not all about the spirit. We're not Gnostics. The word became Flesh, matter matters, right? Okay? But John's gospel, there's no official institution. However, you get to John chapter 19, verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. You remember, uh, how did you die in a crucifixion? Suffocation. So if you broke your legs, you couldn't raise yourself up to take a breath, and you would suffocate. Okay? You ever seen somebody who's dying of lung cancer? That's a very terrible thing because ultimately you, you can't breathe, right? And in some sense, when you see people like that, it, it's a very Christological image because that's, that's what Jesus is on the cross. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. And that, of course, is to fulfill the prophecy. 
not one of his bones will be broken, right? But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. So on the cross, you have the body of Jesus. From his side, you have blood and water. This, for John, is the institution of the sacraments. Okay? So in John's gospel, there's no place where Jesus says, go and baptize all nations. There's no place where he says, this is my body and this is my blood. He uses the image of the crucifixion as the institution of the sacraments. But there's something even more here. In the Old Testament, they tap the rock and water comes out. St. Paul says the rock is Christ. What is he referring to? The crucifixion of Jesus. Now, look at your psalm. Yes. It is tied up with that. That would be more, more of an allegorical reading of, a, of the text. So St. Peter is the rock. He's not actually a rock. Yeah, well, yeah, okay. That was a bad example. Let's use a different example. The point is it's allegorical. I'm not trying to make a, a pitch for the papacy. But um, uh, you're right. You're living stones. Well, you're not actually a stone. But you, as part of the church, build the foundation of the whole body of Christ. Remember, it says, you're living stones, the foundation of Jesus uh, uh, with the apostles and the prophets and Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. Boom. That's an allegorical way. Even St. Peter, on this rock I will build my church. On this confession I'll build my church. This, however, he says, just like he says at the Eucharist, is, here he says, was. I don't think it's allegorical. In the wilderness, as the people are being led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, is that merely cloud and fire, or is that something else? It's Jesus. All over the place, Jesus is hiding himself in different things. Melchizedek, the priest. Remember three people come and eat dinner with Abraham in Genesis? And, and they bring out, you know, they have bread and wine from Melchizedek. All over the Old Testament, you have pictures of Christ. You have instances where he takes on flesh. He takes on form. He looks like a rock. He looks like a cloud. He looks like fire. And then finally, the great revelation is when he comes from Mary, and now he looks like you. Okay? So I don't think it's allegorical. The rock actually was Christ. He was sitting there, looked like stone. Okay? Yes. I think it's in 1 Corinthians. It talks, where he's be, it talks about being baptized into Moses. 1 Corinthians 10. I don't ever remember chapter. I don't even remember books, real honestly. First Corinthians 10. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, verse 4, yeah. So he says, and all were baptized into Moses, because Moses is the Jesus figure, in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock, rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And then that's all in the context of 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 of the Eucharist. You've got to read all the scripture as one great story. 
Okay, yes. Yes, right. Yeah, John 6 would, would at least, um, yeah, it's, it's, some, it's at least a picture of the Lord's Supper. And people have read that a variety of ways. Even Luther it sometimes gets a little off track. But, uh, but he's fairly clear there. My flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. But there's no instance where he sort of institutes it and says, do this. Yeah, you're right, though. John 6 is a picture of that. Okay? You all okay? Any questions? We're having fun now. Psalm 61. Go back there. Because actually this whole psalm, in some sense, refers to the body of Christ as it's crucified. Let's see. If I can find the psalms. Psalm 61. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Verse 2. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Now, what do you know about tents in the Old Testament? What would happen in the tent? Yeah, sanctuary. So the tent is the tent of meeting, also called the tabernacle. Now, if you got your Bible there, flip back to John chapter 1. It's almost as though this psalm has John's gospel in mind, or maybe John has this psalm in mind as he writes. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now the Greek word there for dwelt is, anybody know? Tabernacled. The word became flesh, became a tabernacle. Okay? Now, the word became flesh. He became a tabernacle. What do you know? Now think about the crucifixion, because we've just talked about his side being pierced. What happened in the tabernacle when Jesus died on the cross? The curtain was torn in two. Now, if Jesus is the tabernacle and his side is pierced, the curtain of the new tabernacle is torn in two. Get it? Now, are you just saying that, or do you actually get what I'm saying? You get it, okay? So not only is Jesus the rock, water comes out, but he also says in John 1, he's the tabernacle. In the earthly tabernacle, when Jesus dies, the curtain is slit in two. That was funny how I just said that. It's slit in two. Like, oh, never mind. Uh, now, when Jesus dies on the cross, the curtain, the tabernacle, the tent is slit in two. Right? See this? So Jesus is a rock, and he's the tabernacle. He's the tent. Water pours forth. His side is split in two. There are all these images going on. And the psalmist just says, I cry out to the rock. Why does he cry to the rock? Because the rock can give living water. And I want to be in your tent, which means I want to be in your body. Does this all make sense? Now, we're really, I mean, we're moving quickly here. This is all kind of on the fly. But you have all of this in Psalm 61. Good choice. I'm glad the Holy Spirit spoke to you that way. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. Remember, priests would offer prayers in the tabernacle, in the tent. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. 
Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Lead me to Christ. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me dwell in your flesh forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Remember Jesus says, like a mother hen, I wish to gather my chicks under my wings. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. My parents and my grandparents were all followers of you. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day by day. Now, the question is, who is the king? Yes. Christ is the king. He's not talking about the earthly king at that time. He's talking about the great king to come, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's why he talks about the rock and the tent and the shelter of his wings. So at the end of the day, every psalm is first and foremost about Jesus. And this, in, in a, bit, a, a bit more tangible maybe than all the others. Got it? Oh, I think he did, but I think there's a double meaning to everything. Yeah. Certainly he was praying for Saul, but he was also praying for the great king to come. Saul was a big mess, but so was David. The whole place was a mess. Not unlike the world today. <laughs> yeah, right. It's funny. I was working on my Bible study this morning for Sunday, and the first line is something like, the situation at the first Christmas was not unlike the situation today. There's all this stuff going on, all these emotions running around. People are angry, they're upset, they fear, there's loss. I mean, so you've got to see yourself in sort of the whole of Christian history. It's not about you in 2009. It's about you connected to Mary and Joseph, connected to David, connected to Adam and Eve, and ultimately connected to Christ. It's just one big story. All right. If you don't have any other questions, someone else suggests a psalm. Or we could just end now. Yes, go ahead. Did you have a question? Did you have a psalm? Good, ask the question. Then we'll go to Psalm 131. Ah, yeah, right. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> He's actually, his sermon is going to be just lo one long history narrative. He's just going to say, like, 2,000 years ago, so if you're, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know what he's writing. The martyrology, the calendar, calendar with a K, which is, of course, the German way. Well, I'll tell you what you should know about Christmas. In Yes. Yes, that's, that's a good question. Here, he is probably two or three. Yes, we three kings of Orient are. Yeah, I, we could sing that. Bum, bum, bum. Well, I don't know if I trust everything you hear on Jimmy Kimmel, so that's, that's the first point. <laughs> Although I do love Jimmy Kimmel. Did I tell you we got a new dog? Basset Hound. No, she's five years old. Because I'm, I'm getting to the point. Because I'm trying to work the group a little. So the dog, just let me tell you this, the dog has really taken a liking to me. 
No, her name is Lady. Our Lady, I call her. Our Lady of Guadalupe, Our Lady of Sorrows, Our Lady of... Our Lady of Wheaton, yeah. Her name is actually Lady. We got her from the shelter. But her name was Lady. But how can you change it? She's five years old. You can't change a five-year-old's name. Of course, Emma wanted to name her Fiona. Uh, yeah, wanted Fiona. So, uh, no, we, went, we, went, we kept the name Lady. But Lady, uh, she really likes me. Like when I put my coat on, she starts crying. And all I wanted in a dog. Unconditional, you're exactly right. I didn't want, here's the thing. Everybody else in my life is busy, even my own family. All I wanted was a dog who, when I'd come home, would unconditionally love me. Yeah. And I got that. It's been great. So the first day, who takes the dog? I mean, no one else in my family is taking the dog out for a walk, except for who cleans up the me. Okay, so I do all this for the dog, and guess what? The dog recognizes that. The dog's love language is acts of service. So... We have a very, very good relationship. Well, the second night she was at, hey, keep it down back there, Matt. <laughs> no need for the exact, that's part of the reason why. When I get a little emotional, I like it when you're not down here. <laughs> so the first night, I'm getting to the, I'm getting to the, yeah, I'm getting to the point of the whole thing. When you ask where does, the, no, I'm not going to the cage with her. So the first, the second night she was home, cried. So at 3 o'clock, who got up with the dog? had eight cups of coffee, and worked all the way through. In fact, just so you know how much I love the dog, guess what was on HBO? Marley and Me. So Lady and I watched Marley and Me. I thought, this is great. Well, when I was flipping through, Jimmy Kimmel was on. That was the train of thought there, OK? Jeez, you want to know where that was going? I was just trying to. There was, there was a lot going on in here. So I wouldn't believe everything you hear at 3.30 AM on Jimmy Kimmel. However. Uh, now that I've sufficiently worked the group a little, uh, Christmas. In the ancient world, and Pastor Bruzek will tell you why Christmas was maybe in June or July. I'll tell you why I think it was in December, at least for the, at least for the early church. Anybody know the day of the Annunciation? Vic, when's the Annunciation? boy. Okay, so... March 25th, in the church, even to this day, the Annunciation. So th what's the Annunciation? When the angel comes and announces to Mary she's going to have a child. March 25th. Now, now, boy, that was good. Didn't miss a beat. Now, this makes sense because March 25th is nine months from, from Christmas, from December 25th. But the interesting thing is this. In the ancient world, since they couldn't keep track of when people were born and died, they always said, you died on the day you were conceived. You died on the day that you were conceived. So for the early church, they not only celebrated the Annunciation on March 25th, they also celebrated Good Friday on March 25th. And they did this to show that birth and life and death all go hand in hand. It's one big event. And this happens very rarely. It happened about four years ago where March 25th, there was an early Easter. March 25th was Good Friday and the Annunciation. So the question, you be me, what color do you put up? White for the Annunciation or black for Good Friday? Or as someone suggested in the joy group, zebra. <laughs> I used to be a ref. I could wear a, keep going. 
Because we've realized over 2,000 years that people don't always die in the day that they were conceived. So it was because they couldn't keep track. So it was an easy way of saying it. And, and they actually believed it. You died on the day that you were conceived. Uh, I think it might be more likely that Easter was in the spring just given the context of Jerusalem when they go to the tomb. Could be. I don't know. Does it really matter? Yes, it does coincide with Passover. But you didn't answer the question, white or black? When the Annunciation falls on Good Friday, as it did in the early church, do you use white or you use black? It doesn't, yes, it doesn't, it's not a trick question. I don't know. Which service do you have? Yep. Yep. What takes precedent in the church? The Annunciation or Good Friday? The Incarnation. The Annunciation takes precedent in the church. That's a question. The Incarnation is the big day. Me. Okay, why is the death the bigger day? What's that? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Well, let me ask you this. This, okay, so this, and then we'll go to Psalm 1. What was it? 62? Psalm 162? Is there Psalm 162? Had there not been a fall into sin, you be me, had there not been a fall into sin, would Jesus have still become a man? I don't know what pastor that would be, but you probably should leave him unnamed. Keep going. If there was no fall into sin, did he walk in flesh? No, he didn't walk in flesh. <laughs> when you talk on the phone to your mom, is that a different relationship when you have her in person? Okay, good. Same person, but a different kind of relationship, right? If you, let's say, let's say you had married Pastor Bruzek over the phone. <laughs> it's all hypothetical, I know. Let's say for the past, how long have you been married now? 26 happy years, happy years. Let's say for the past 26 years you'd never seen him. <laughs> okay, well let's pretend. Now, if you had never seen him, would your relationship with him be different? Yes. Is it better that you've seen him? Okay, don't answer. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No. <laughs> now, I will. I will. And your husband should read his email next time. <laughs> because he wrote me and said, do we have women's Bible study? I said, yes, we have it. This morning I said, are you doing it? He said, no, you told me you were doing it. I said, no, I said, we have it. I didn't tell you I was doing it. So there was confusion all around. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> How come we see, whose idea was this? Go in peace, serve the Lord. But your relationship is different. Well, the only point I want to make is, yeah, could he have done anything? Sure, he could have. The church has never, has never worked by the Lord to do anything, but he could. You're right. Would, would you need him to become man? No, you wouldn't need him to become man because there's no sin. However, would you have a different relationship with the Lord if he actually took on your flesh? 
Yes, you might. In fact, you probably, I would propose to you, would have a deeper relationship than you would if you only talked to him who was somewhere around you, but you'd never seen him. Right? So the incarnation is the defining moment in Christian history when God actually takes on your flesh. Now, is the death important? Yeah, it's very important. Is the resurrection important? Yeah, and in some sense, the death is more important than the resurrection. Norman Nagel, when he was here, said, do you want a savior from your sins or a savior from your mortality? Jesus on the cross saves you from your sins. Jesus coming out of the tomb means you're going to get your body back someday. You can go to heaven without a body, right? You can't go to heaven with your sins. But the incarnation is the event. That's where all this happens. Well, I don't know what they saw, but it, certain, but it certainly wasn't like it was when Jesus walked with them in Jerusalem. Because as far as we know, yeah, did he have a presence? Yeah, he did. But did he have flesh? He didn't. He was actualized, but he wasn't seen in the same way that maybe you'd see him as a dove in, in, at the baptism. Right. Well, in Genesis 1, you see all the Trinity. The Father's there, the Word is Jesus, and the Spirit's hovering over the face of the You'll hear in four days or five days. I don't know. Yeah, partly we have a different way of number in the months now than we did before. So when it, yeah. And the only reason someone would bring up it could be a different month is because they're trying to defeat the purpose of what it's all about. It's an easy, it's an easy, yeah. There's no reason to get worked up over it because guess what? Postmoderns aren't concerned about dates. Who, who was the guy that was on the show? How old was he? No, he wasn't. Young? Old? Where did he go to college? I don't know. Who was his professor? I don't know. <laughs> There's someone behind this who's concerned about dates and time. No, I, it, it's a generalization to say that they're not, but most young people, guess what they're concerned about? That it happened, not when it happened. No, because it's more fun when you don't. This, died and conceived, they know, logically, that doesn't always happen. But guess what? It's mysterious enough that it's kind of fun. And the question of you put up white or black, that's fun for a postmodern. Because it makes you think about what's important. They probably, yeah, they do. Yeah. But here's the thing. This is, this is part of what we miss. The liturgical calendar trumps the worldly calendar. So guess what? The most important thing for Emma is the color goes from blue to white. Not that Jimmy Kimmel says it was a different date. Because the church is, okay, good. Well, that redeems Jimmy a bit. No, but you see what I'm saying? You're right. She could say it. She's going to go to some class in high school and say, You're all, you've been wrong all my life, Dad, and I, I can't stand you. Yeah. At that point, I'll say the Easter Bunny didn't really come, and Santa Claus wasn't really, and the Tooth Fairy, and all that stuff. No, but the point is, the order of the church trumps the order of the world. Okay? Other questions? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. And what's the beginning of the church year? What season starts the church year? Advent, right? Which is very odd. The church, I mean, the church year doesn't start in August when you come back from summer. The church year starts in December in Advent, meaning preparation is the beginning of the Christian life. 
It starts with the Annunciation of Mary. She prepares for nine months and then has her child. You get nine months and four weeks. But you notice how the readings have, have changed too. John the Baptizer, up to this week, what's the text this Sunday? Mary's Magnificat. So she's now conceived. She's going off to talk to Elizabeth. And then next week, she'll have the baby. All right? OK. Psalm. Let's see, what was the suggestion? 131. 131. <laughs> well, thanks for this one. <laughs> I have no idea what it means, but we'll give it a go. Oh, now it is a song of ascent. These are all songs of ascent. Um, yes, why don't you do that? Yeah. Well, because lifted up in the Hebrew is arrogant. So my heart is not arrogant is what it says. Okay. Somebody read the psalm for us. Okay, go ahead. All right, perfect. Now, you got a lot going on there. First thing it says is, my heart is not arrogant. So the opposite of arrogance is what? Humility, okay? So my heart is humble, is what it essentially says. My heart is not arrogant. My heart is humble. Now, it says, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself, and there the reference is, I'm sure, I do not occupy my mind. You know, I don't think. O to occupy yourself is to think of, right? I do not think of my, I do not think with things too great or too marvelous for me. Now, what relationship does knowledge have to humility? What relationship does knowledge have to humility? Okay, tell me more. Yeah, do you, know, do you know people in the church who know a ton about the church, and particularly a ton about Lutheranism, and yet are extraordinarily arrogant? Yeah. That's exactly right. So in some sense, you know, knowledge puffs people up. Now look at, uh, look at 1 Corinthians 1, and this will help explain the psalm, I think. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. What essentially the psalm is saying is, don't be arrogant and don't be all about knowing the right stuff. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Folly is the opposite of knowledge, right? It's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, now listen to what St. Paul says. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. Okay? Now, this, in some sense, it's good you're reading this right after the one that referred to John's gospel, because John's gospel is, is an answer to people who say it's all about knowledge. 
right? Those are called Gnostics. It's all about knowledge. And John's saying it's all about flesh. So the psalm then says, O Lord, my heart is not arrogant. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy my mind with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Now, it's fascinating he references a child there. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. What do you know about children and wisdom? What do you know about children and, well, yeah, they don't have a whole lot, <laughs> right? Children can't think through the same things you and I think through. Um, and yet, can children be faithful? Yes, because faith and belief is not this. It's the heart, right? And what do children believe? Yes, yes, whatever you tell them. But even more than that, it's not just about sort of training. It's not like you've got a robot and you're telling them all the right stuff. What they experience, yeah. Uh, now think about Christian kids. What does baptism give a Christian kid? The Holy Spirit. Yeah, cleansing. Faith in Christ, right? Faith in Christ. So yes, kids, this is, why, this is why the scriptures say train up a child in the way they should go. It presumes the child is a Christian child. Once the child's been baptized and been given knowledge of Christ, which is this kind of knowledge, not this kind of knowledge, the goal then is to train up kids in the way that they should go. But at the end of the day, it's not about this. It's about this. If you've got uh, 1 Corinthians marked there, flip back real quick. 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So does wisdom matter? Does discernment matter? Not the way the world speaks of it. Right? What matters is the foolishness of the cross. And you receive the foolishness of the cross when you get water on your forehead and the Holy Spirit comes inside your flesh. So to be a Christian, to be wise means you believe in Jesus. In the world, to be wise means you have a good job. You know what other people don't know. You raise your head high. You wear a nice suit to work. The way of the world is not the way of the church. Wisdom in the church is to know Christ. Discernment in the church is to know Christ. Wisdom and discernment in the world, world means you got a lot up here. So what David is saying in the Song of Ascent, now in the Song of Ascent means they're ascending to where? Jerusalem. What happens in Jerusalem? The temple. What happens in the temple? Sacrifices, which all point to the sacraments of the church. They're going off to the divine service. So as they go off to the divine service, they're walking up the mountain. He says, I'm not arrogant. I don't occupy with things in my head, occupy myself with things in my head. It's not about what I know and what I don't know. It's about what I've been given to believe. I have been calmed, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Now, what do children know about their mothers? They don't know always their mom's name. They don't know what their mom does for a living. They don't know why mom goes off to work. What they do know is mom loves me, right? Like a weaned child is my soul within me. I trust my mother. 
O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Now, uh, all of this sort of flies in the face of um, of the rationalism of the past however many hundred years. Because rationalism essentially says it's about now, how is how everybody know what rationalism is? It's basically I can sort of think things all the way through, and if you can't think, somehow you're less than somebody else. How has rationalism played itself out in the church? Where have you seen it play itself out in the church? Good. Don't believe it's the body and the blood because you can't figure it out, right? Yeah. Good. And so when Jesus does, yeah, so when Jesus does things that appear to be irrational, then you don't do them, right? What rational person would sit down and eat with a prostitute? Because to the world that appears that you're, there's some business going on, right? So what rational person would do? So when Jesus does irrational things, we then don't follow suit. What else? How else has this played itself out in the church? Keep going. What's confirmation? Yes. Uh, yep. Right. Yes. Good. Okay. So trying to prove. When I was on, when I was at the seminary, I did field work at a church in Decatur, and every year, and some of you have been through this, right before the confirmation service, they would do what to the catechumens? Examine them. What do you? No. <laughs> Now, don't get me wrong. It's not bad to know stuff. In fact, I wish our kids knew more. But at the end of the day, to get confirmed in that church was what you could recite. So if you didn't know it, or let's say you had a learning disability, you weren't part of the confirmation class. Now, that flies in the face of 1 Corinthians 1, because it's not about what you know. Where else has this played itself out in the church? Let me ask you this. Why? Uh, yeah, baptism. Your, your evangelical friends say you can baptize your kid when your kid knows what's going on. Yeah, exactly. And he decides because he knows it's best for him. My grandmother-in-law, may her soul rest in peace, her last you know, eight years of her life, she was sort of stricken with Alzheimer's. And there was a point where the pastor said, we don't know if we can commune her anymore. Now, why would you not commune her? Because she doesn't, doesn't understand. Okay, so you be me. You've got someone with Alzheimer's who has been baptized, who's been baptized into a church that confesses something about the Eucharist, body and blood, and comes to a point in their life where they can't figure it out anymore because their brain fails them. Do you commune them or do you not commune them? Now, now answer the question in light of Psalm 131 and 1 Corinthians 1. Yes, the question is can you chew it? Can you swallow it? It's a real practical question. It's not about what do you know. It's about can you actually get this down? Yes, in fact, and she does know it because she's been baptized, right? Yeah, the guy who the priest walks in and says, you know, ecce agnus dei, ecce equitolis peccatum mundi, and the boy sits up and takes the Eucharist, right? So it's not about this. It's about this. So you be me. Would you commune her or not commune her? Commune her, right? 
Now, this, is, this shows the effect of rationalism in the church. Where else does it show itself? There's one more place. That's a clue. Yes, the early Eucharist. When, you, when do most Lutheran churches, you think, commune kids? Why do they commune them at confirmation? Because they finally know it. Because they finally can think it all the way through. Because they take discernment in 1 Corinthians 11 and make it an intellectual thing and not a heart thing. They, re they don't read Psalm 131, which says, it's not about what I know. It's about going up the mountain to the Lord's temple and receiving his gifts. Like a child who knows the voice of its mother. So it plays itself out in all those sorts of ways. And what happens is then you get, you know, hoodlums next door who, you know, well, I mean, just look at them. Have you been in there lately? I mean, that, talk about original sin. That's it, right? The original and actual sin right there in one room. But those people, those people need the good gifts of Christ as much as anybody else. And what, what sort of makes them worthy? Not this, but this, right? Uh, let's go here, and then we'll go to you. Yes. Yep. Because uh, you're probably, um, well, kids are different than adults, right? Kids are different than adults. When kids go to be baptized, um, are, there, are the qualifications to baptize a kid different than baptizing an adult? Yeah. I mean, if you're an adult, we expect that you're going to come under our pastoral care. You're not just duping us. You know, all. But as a kid, we kind of say, ah, if your parents are going to bring you up in the church, and you know, we don't really ask you to recite anything. Um, so for kids, so for kids and speaking about the Eucharist, it might be a little different as well. Um, when you talk about kids in relationship with the Eucharist, you're talking about kids who have been baptized into a church that confesses something. Baptism is not about you. It's about Christ, and it's about the broader church. So if you baptize your kid as a Lutheran, that kid, by virtue of his baptism, confesses what Lutherans confess about the Eucharist, which is what the Bible confesses. It's the body and it's the blood. Even though they can't say it. You know why they say you know why, you know how they confess it? In the creed that the sponsors say on their behalf. That's why you have sponsors. We ask the question of the kid. When we have, you know, when you bring a kid to baptism and you hold the baby there, that kid can't speak. But I'm looking right at the kid and saying, Do you renounce the devil? Do you believe in God the Father? Yes. And someone speaks on their behalf. They believe it. They just can't say it. Adults, however, who have been Baptist or Methodist or whatever and come into the church and say, I feel it in my heart. I don't know anything about this, but I feel it in my heart. That's a different story because they don't have the same confession that child does. Okay? So that's where some, some instruction, and again, it's not all about this. There are people who get all the way through and say to me, I can't figure it all the way out, but I believe that it's the body and it's the blood. That's different than, I know it's the body and the blood, and I don't believe it. What else? Yes. Yes. Yep. Uh, well, you tell them what Jesus has said about it. So you tell them um, what happens at the altar is Jesus speaks. And when he speaks, it's the body and the blood. And the body and the blood, when they touch you, it forgives you. Or as Emma says, it gives me peace. Or Audrey says, it keeps me safe, right? So you tell them what Jesus said about the Eucharist. Part of the problem with the Lutheran Church and all other churches in general is we've said more about the sacraments than Jesus says about the sacraments. What Jesus says is very simple. This is my body, and this is my blood. And do it, and take it, and eat it. 
What's that? And it forgives you. Yeah. So he says, what he says about the Eucharist is very simple. Body and blood for your forgiveness. And kids, um, now, you, you know, I realize you could, till the cows come home, make excuses. For, oh, they're like robots. or they'll say. But you know what? You can, just like when we commune you, we can see your eagerness with which you come to the Eucharist. It's even more clear in children. And so what we do is we, we instruct them for 10, 12, 13 weeks over the summer. We meet with them all, yeah. And so we, we ask them questions. Like I just met with uh, a child last Friday, and I said, does Jesus love you? Yes. I said, does your mom love you? Yes. How do you know your mom loves you? She hugs me. How does Jesus hug you? He, put, he touches me. And I point, I've got a picture on my wall of the chalice. What's that? It's the body and the blood. How do you know? Jesus says so. This is a, this is a four-year-old child. Well, there's, well the, yeah, and there's the great, the great line at the very end of the Lutheran confession, which for a Lutheran trumps everything else besides the scriptures, which says uh, we, re we reject the notion that all of these outward practices are necessary for coming to the Eucharist. The only thing necessary to receive the Eucharist worthily is faith, is faith. So if you actually believe the Lord grants faith at baptism, there's something there. Yep. Exactly. Uh, right. It's not, it's not going to be being smart. But it, it means receiving the gifts takes being a child. Yeah. 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 Right. He does. And partly you see David's maturity over the Psalms. As a Christian matures, he does play a more active role in his own spiritual life. And that's not a bad thing. Yeah. And don't forget the reality of, I said this very early. Yeah. And you're not, you're not your own person. You actually are, you're joined to the flesh of Jesus. So you doing it is no different than Jesus doing it. When he does it, you do it. When you do it, he does it. You can't distinguish between you and Christ. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right. You all okay? Have a very happy Christmas. Uh, thank you. We'll prepare next time, just for you, Kirby. Uh, don't feel bad. No sin, no guilt. Here we go. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.